I want to remind us this morning that being a Christian is the highest calling that anyone could ever receive. Ever. It's a calling that comes forth from none other than God Himself. He is the originator of it. He is the perfecter of it. And He has a purpose in it. We may not always understand those purposes that He always does. And our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our own understanding. It is in Him and in Him only. We're going to be jumping into Romans 14 this morning. Just make special note there, I can remember where we're supposed to be. Chapter 14, beginning with verse 1 through verse 12. And we've been studying over the last several weeks, uh, really the second part of the book of Romans. For the first many chapters, Paul was uh, teaching us things that we are to understand and, and believe and to act upon, uh, but when he got to chapter 11, things begin to change and challenges us with the idea of how then shall we live. In other words, how do we apply the things that he has taught us up to that point? How do we, we practice these very precious truths, theological truths that he lays down so clearly in those beginning chapters of the book of Romans? In chapter 14, he addresses something specifically, and it's not just how then shall we live, it is how then shall we live amongst the brethren of the church. How are we supposed to live among one another in a godly fashion, in a way that truly honors Christ and at the same time builds us up in our faith and understanding, not only as individuals, but as a member, an active participant in the body of Christ itself. So let's just read the first 12 verses of chapter 14. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not uh, for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, one man has faith that he may eat all things, that he who is weak eats vegetables only, that him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does uh, not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall uh, give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. So how is it that we're supposed to live 
within the boundaries of the family of God. I think one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity is this. Is knowing where we can give ground to other believers and at the same time knowing where we cannot. I don't think that's a lesson that, that, that very, very many people in the church have ever considered much of and certainly have never uh, actually accomplished. Very often the world looks at upon the church as those people who want to judge everybody. Pass judgment on the way people act and how they behave and what they say and what they do, how they spend their money, etc., etc., etc. Sadly, very often you would find this, that, 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 that sometimes there are people within the context of the church itself who are very in very strong judgments of their brothers and sisters. Let me just say this to you this morning. If you believe that you're someone that is very strong in your faith, more than likely you are on the weak side. If you think, picture yourself as being this wonderful, wonderful Christian, almost perfected at this point in your life, then you are probably one of the weakest ones among us because you do not really know yourself. You do not really know your own heart. Very often what we found down through the generations is the church that very often minors on the majors, in other words, makes major things very minor things, things that cannot be made minor, minor, or should not be made minor, minor, at the same time, we have churches very often majoring on the minors. And I think one of the greatest marks of Christian maturity is this, is knowing where we can give ground to our brothers and sisters in Christ and knowing where we cannot. And what I'm telling you here is the cannot is this, is those things that we consider to be the absolute essentials to Christianity, if you take them out of the formula, you no longer have Christianity. And that's what the dividing point is. You know, we're reformed. And let me tell you, I'm glad we're reformed because I personally, I believe it's the... the the flavor of Christianity that follows most closely to what is taught to us in the Word of God. I believe that with all of my heart. If I didn't believe that, I would not be Reformed. I think Reformed Christianity has answers for all kinds of questions that nobody else does. Difficult questions, hard answers. But I think very often Reformed Christianity is, has, has taken uh, hard hits. It's not very popular in, in the Protestant world today. We are in the minority by a long shot. There are people that believe that what we believe puts us in a position of being er very arrogant and proud and puffed up above other people. If that is our impression of us, 
We need, to, we need to question, do they have ground for coming to that conclusion? Do we come across as arrogant and proud in a step above everybody else? If that's true, then shame on us. So how is it that we know where we can give ground and where we cannot? There's only one way. That is to know the Word of God. There's no substitute for it. It doesn't exist. But we must be careful not to major on minors or minor on majors. And we need to know the distinction and the difference between the two. Where we can't give ground and where we probably need to give ground. I would say today that the church, as the world views it today, and probably most church people would, would say this kind of thing, that we don't see this united church universal. We see a church that is very fractured. I mean, why are there so many different denominations? Why are there so many different... Why, is, why are independent churches becoming more and more popular in today's world? The world does not look at us as being united with one another. I didn't when I was an unbeliever. I can remember when I was in kindergarten, one morning on the playground. It's funny, I just remember, you know, a minute here and there from all the thoughts and everything and experiences that went through your life when you were certain ages. But I was like five years old at Happy Hearts Kindergarten. Some of you are laughing because you can't picture me being five years old. On the playground during recess, and I'm here at First Presbyterian Church in Ocala. This is where my kindergarten was. And I'm looking across the street at First Baptist Church, which was our church. And I'm wondering, what's the difference? Why is it that the church exists in this world in all these different segments? And it's something I struggled with as an unbeliever for years. All these people talking about how they love each other and this, that, and the other. And you look at the church and all you see is a lot of infighting and, and, and that sort of thing going on. We need to give more and more thought to the church united, not the church divided, and do whatever we can to bring resolution to as much of the division as we possibly can. But at the same time, we have to remember that we cannot give any ground at all on the essential. You understand that there are people today that would claim that they are Christians, but they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. And I would imagine that there's probably a significant number of people in this world that believe that. Is that something that we can accept? Can we receive those people as brothers and sisters in Christ? And the answer is absolutely not. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father but through Him. And that's true. 
There's so many flavors of Christianity today that are very legalistic. I mean, to the point that you think that Jesus is almost gone from the picture and it's all about keeping the rules and how well you do it. We need to be reminded of the very essence of the gospel all the time, and we need to remind ourselves of the essence of the gospel all the time, in particular how it applies specifically to us. What Paul's talking about here is people in the church passing judgments, sometimes very harsh judgments, on other people in the church because they don't see them doing the things they think are most important or they see them doing some things that they think they ought not to be doing. Is there a place for that? There is. But it's not over trivial things. It's over major things. Major things that possibly have the ability to cause great slander in, in, in regard to the church before the world. I mean, we look, we're in a denomination that really believes in church discipline. We do. We do it. But I want to remind us of something else this morning, and that is this, is that Scripture establishes boundaries for us, but at the same time it gives us very great freedom within those boundaries. We need to be thankful for that freedom. Don't, let, don't make Christianity in some, to some kind of legalistic religion because it just flat is not. It isn't. I want to remind us of some things this morning. One of those is this, is every one of us is a unique human being and therefore every one of us is a unique Christian. There is no one like you in all of existence, exactly. There never has been, there never will be. You are a unique Christian. Because we're unique, that means that we also have differences. Differences in the way we understand things sometimes, peripheral things, the differences in the way that we apply things, differences in our personalities, differences in the way we look, differences in all kinds of aspects of our lives. I just hope there's not anybody in this room or anybody that's listening for that matter that has a mindset, if everyone wants to do better, then they just need to be like I am. If you're in that place, you're in a precarious place. You really are. Something you need to think very deeply about. James Boyce gives us some ideas that might help us to remember how to keep things in proper perspective. First one is this. He says, other Christians don't answer to you. They answer to God. You don't have to answer to you for anything. Well, maybe to the church as a whole, but not you as individually. There are times when the church as a whole has to speak against certain things. You understand that, right? But ultimately, we all answer to God. 
Uh, number two, God has already accepted them. They're part of the body, whether you think they ought to be or not. They're His. He's laid claim to them. He's done everything necessary to make them His, uh, his own. Uh, number three, all Christians stand by God's grace. This is something that we need to remind ourselves all the time of, and as being reformed, I think we have a lot of strength in this particular thing, and that is to be reminded constantly that I am saved uh, by, by grace through faith. And that is a gift of God. It's not something I've earned. It's not something I deserve. God has freely given it to me as a gift. I cannot, therefore, be prideful of it and look down my nose at other people as a result of it. God has made the difference. I have not. And remember this, as Paul gets, gets into this at the end of that passage that we've just, or the passage we just read, and that is we are all accountable to God. I mean, there is a sense in which we are accountable to other believers. You need to understand that. But ultimately, we are all accountable to God. But as a believer, you're not accountable to God for your sins. What you're accountable to God for now is this. It's what you've done with the good life He has given you. Have you done it for His greatness and for His glory, or have you done it for yourself? Are you about your father's business, or are you about your own business? And I want to remind us, in case I forget this, that the Christians have no reason, have no ground for even contemplating the possibility that on the day of judgment, you're going to get kicked out of the house. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not what Paul is talking about here. When we give an account, it's not going to be accounting for our sin. And we know that anyone that is accounted for their sin at the day of the judgment is going to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. We understand that. What it has to do with, with Christians is more what will your heavenly reward be? You need to understand that hell's not going to be exactly the same thing for everybody. But I want to challenge you with the idea of understanding that heaven also is not going to be exactly the same thing for everybody. We will all be blessed, but there are some people who will experience that blessedness in ways that perhaps... Other people don't. As I said before, those who typically think of themselves as the most mature are probably the least mature. I also want to remind us that Paul has already written these words all the way back in Romans chapter 12. For see, the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. In other words, don't be all puffed up and proud. 
but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith. And what I want to talk about is that measure of faith. Obviously, some people have greater faith than other people. It is amazing when you look back through the history of, of the Christian world and you look at in their places and uh, true this is true today. I don't know you, but I have this just unbelievable respect for the martyrs. People who have literally absolutely given their life for no other reason than the fact that they associate with Christ. Millions in the twentieth century. You know, it's not something that we experience here. As a matter of fact, we experience very little of any of what people would call persecution. It seems to be growing. I don't know about you, but I'm more alarmed about that every day. The church becomes more and more under attack as the culture around us becomes more and more immoral. We're just seeing it. And we're only beginning to see it. It's going to get worse unless God does something and makes things better. But one of these days, some people in this room may have the opportunity to die for no other reason than they're a Christian. The only thing I can say to you is this, is if the time comes, you can be assured God will give you the grace to do it and do it well. He will. Don't doubt it. God gives each a measure of faith. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he doesn't give faith equally to every believer. You ever think about that? I mean, faith is what's necessary, but it doesn't mean that everybody has the same degree and level of faith in, in Christ as other people do. And I just want to remind us again that grace is God's gift. Faith is God's gift through Christ. So we don't have all the same degree and level of faith. And we need to understand that. And let me just caution you, if you think you're one of the ones that has a higher level of it, you may need to think about things. And because that is true, we should not have the same exact expectation for everybody. Even though very often we do. And very often, let's be honest, we have the idea that if other people were like me, everybody else would be a whole lot better off. But the truth is this, is God expects every one of us to live the degree of faith He has given us to the utmost as much as humanly possible. But we always have to remember that He's given us what we have, and therefore we cannot be puffed up, and we cannot be proud if God seems to use us in some great way that He doesn't use other believers. 
There are a couple of things that are going on here in, in Rome, and there's a reflection of it also that some of these things were taking place in, in Corinth. Uh, there were people who believed that they were stronger in their faith because, and, 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 and they would argue that because of their perspective when it came to some things. One of those was their diet. Uh, we see this really reflected in 1 Corinthians. Uh, one of the things, one of the issues the early church was confronted with was this, was there was a lot of pagan idol worship going on around them. You know, the Romans and other people did it, and they, and they, and they utilized animal sacrifices in it. And so one of the issues is this, and very often the meat that was left from those sacrifices would wind up in the local meat market. And so one of the things people were confronted with is, is it okay for us to eat that meat even though it was sacrificed to some idol? Is that okay for me as a Christian to partake in that? There were some people who were saying, over my dead body will I ever eat any of that meat. And if anyone uh, here in the church does, then you're the scum of the earth. And there were other people that looked more upon their Christian freedom. So let me just tell you, People there who believed that they were most mature, which which do you think was the, that group? It was the people who believed that it was sacrilegious to partake of that meat. And Paul cuts their legs out from underneath them. Certainly there's a wrong reason for doing it. But there's also a right reason for doing Most, I think probably the average church person would look upon those people as being really religious and really faithful to Christ. And Paul's saying they're the ones who are not so much. They're looking upon themselves very prideful and they're looking down their nose at their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what Paul says basically is those people who are willing to eat it, they're the most mature, not you. Which, which, which surprises everybody. It surprised me when I kind of came to understand that. Doesn't it surprise you a little bit? Evidently, the same kind of thing was going on here in Rome. Those kinds of issues. We're dividing the church. Another thing that was an issue was 
the issue of days. If you remember, back in the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel, they really had some strict understanding in regard to particular special days, right? Days that were set apart. Passover. Central. Not only that, the high holy days, the feast, feast days, other days. Something that the church struggles with today. What does it mean to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Seriously. The Westminster Confession of Faith takes a rather strict view of the Sabbath and it basically for, forbids anyone from participating in any kind of worldly enjoyments, pleasures, recreation. We understand the Westminster Confession of Faith is based upon Scripture. It's not the Bible. You may not realize, and I see it all the time because I sit on the examining committee, that is the vast majority, not just a few, not just one or two, but the vast majority of pastors becoming ordained in the PCA do not hold strictly to that. The reason being, not because they don't want it to be true, but the reason being you can't find a whole lot of biblical justification for it. The vast majority of PC pastors would tell you that they believe they're convicted that the Sabbath day is not only a day of worship and praise of God, it's also a day of rest in the sense that it means resting from the other six days. I mean, there are people, let me tell you something, we're going to go home today after church and, and, and more likely than not, we're going to all wind up in the swimming pool playing with each other for the afternoon. Unfortunately, there are some Christian brothers and sisters in the world, in the church in general today that look upon that as sacrilegious. You know, you're supposed to devote the whole, all of Sunday from, from actually from sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday. And nothing but prayer and worship and rejoicing specifically in God. Do you think anyone has ever done that? Well, Jesus did. But He didn't do it in the way that people expected. And when Jesus, Jesus did it. Did He do it like people thought it was supposed to be done? No! Jesus enjoyed the Sabbath. He had joy and pleasure. The Sabbath, and very often the church has done this to people. It has made the Sabbath into a curse. That's exactly what the Jewish people did. 
That's what the, what, what the Pharisees in the day of Jesus, they made this blessing that God gave to people and, and turned it into a curse that people hated. They dreaded the Sabbath. It was the worst day of the week. There's still people in the church trying to do the same thing to people today. I'll remind you that Jesus and the disciples walked through that field on a Sabbath. And they were, Jesus didn't know, but the disciples did. They were plucking those heads of grain and eating them. So life does not stop on the Sabbath day. There's a sense in which life is even more full on the Sabbath day. I'll be honest with you, my view of Sabbath keeping has changed somewhat over the years. I used to be a lot more of a stricter Sabbatarian than I am now. Uh, and let me tell you, it needs to be different. It shouldn't be like every other day. You need to understand that. But it's a day that is meant for your well-being, to strengthen you, to build you. Not just in your knowledge, but in your practice of your faith. Is the Sabbath a blessing? Let me tell you, I've heard church people make some very harsh judgments about other people in regard to this particular issue over and over again. Let me just give you an example. Years ago when the church was very early, I mean, we wouldn't even call us a church at that point. We're just a group of people meeting together and that sort of thing. And we decided we're going to have a picnic. And we decided to have it after church on Sunday. And that just seemed like a logical time to do it for most of us because we're already together for worship and, you know, and, and all of that. And... Uh, so it just made sense to us. And there was a person in the core group that took real exception to it. Very great exception to it. Because we were committing some terrible, awful sin. That person left the group eventually because that was not the first time we did something they were offended by. But I believe it then and I believe it now. When is a better time for the people of God to get together and enjoy being with each other? Brunch. Understand that there are people so steeped in their legalism that would think that us staying behind and fellowshipping and breaking bread with one another is sacrilegious. I had the audacity to one time, and I learned this real quick, I talked about not having brunch anymore. 
And I thought I was going to be drawn and quartered or sacrificed in the, in the grass out in the parking lot. <laughs> well, let me just say, there, there are churches that don't do that, but it's become a tradition. And so let me tell you something. Sometimes traditions are good for churches as long as you remember that it's a tradition and we don't begin to develop the idea. And it'd be very easy for us to do that as believers of, of coming to the conclusion that if you don't stand, stay behind after church at least one Sunday a month, then you're committing a sin. I think this is one of the weaknesses of the church today is people cannot make the distinction between what's tradition, what tradition has developed, and what really is scriptural. There are people who believe that just by taking the offering as we do, and we don't have the offering part in our worship service, and this, that, and the other, they didn't in the Bible either. But there are people that believe we're almost sacrilegious because we don't pass the, the offering plate. But passing the offering plate is a way of collecting the offerings. It is a tradition developed by people. It is not an edict of Scripture. And let me tell you, God has blessed us abundantly in that practice. When we first started talking about it, I was talking about it with the deacons, and they were like, you know what, Keith, if we do that, go, giving is going to go down. You just need to understand that. That, that. One of the reasons people give when we pass the plate is because they want other people to be impressed with them. They didn't come right out and say that, but that's basically the conclusion they were coming to. So I said, well, let's just try for a while. Let me tell you, once we did it for just a few weeks, we ain't no one ever going back to passing the plate. We're letting people do what they feel God calling them to do without any hindrance or discouragement or whatever from anybody else. But I have, we have people come visit sometimes and they're like aghast. You don't pass the plate? What are you, some kind of cult or something? Again, if we're supposed to do it, show me in the Bible. It's not there. Man, people that believe we're supposed to only sing songs that are in the hymnal, as if the hymnal's inerrant. It's not. It's not. To see wisdom and knowledge and maturity knows the difference. How do you know the difference? You know what the Bible says. You understand what it teaches. Let me tell you, if, if, if the church itself would just learn these basic principles that Paul's encouraging here, you would see the church at large transformed. It would lose very much the worldly appearance that it has in many ways. And it would stand out like a sore thumb. Not as something that people perceive as bad, but something people would perceive as unbelievably good.
So how great is your faith? Are you expressing it to the full? If other people look down their nose at you, do you let it just roll off of you like water on a duck's back? You should. You shouldn't go out of your way to irritate or aggravate anybody. At the same time, if you're on solid ground, you need to walk on that solid ground with joy and fulfillment and all that stuff. Don't let those anchors hold you down. Don't let those ropes pull you back. If Christ is trying to push you forward, don't you dare let anything hold you backward. We're not a very big church, but I know this, that there are people in this room that love people in this room in a way that they probably never loved other people in their life. They really do know what it means to be Christian brothers and sisters. Michael, he knows. We hardly ever talk to each other. We hardly ever see each other. But when we do, it's just like we saw each other yesterday. We are brothers. Close brothers. Not just today. Not just because He's here this morning. But forever. I really do appreciate all of your, your cards and things in regard to my sister. But there's a reality, and the reality is this, is that when you have assurance of someone's salvation, that then being in the circumstances that she was in, there's more relief than there is grief. Because I believe with all of my heart that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be with her again forever. And she will be herself. She hasn't been herself for 10 years. And then we'll have a conversation with her for the last five years at all. To understand for her that this is a good thing? It's a really good thing? That she's experiencing, that the life that she's experienced over the last 10 years is not a life that anybody would want for themselves or for a, for a loved one. But the fact of the matter is, is the life she's experiencing now is well worth it. And that's eternal life. It's not just life for a few years here in this world. And very often we get so wrapped up in what's going on in my life right now that we forget to keep things on the scale of eternity. And when it comes to eternity, the little bit of time that we have here on earth is nothing. Nothing. It will fade in the distant past forever. We should have great concern for our brothers and sisters and loved ones and other people that die that don't know Jesus. But when they do know Jesus, there really should be a sense of joy. Let's face it, we're not really hurting for them, we're hurting for me. 
you really wanted, if I really wanted the best for my sister, this is exactly what I would want. And sometimes we let even the selfishness of our own heart get in the way of things like that. Well, anyway, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're strengthened. Challenged. I'm challenged. I hope so. There's nothing like being a child of God. There's nothing like being part of the body of Christ. There's no better place. It doesn't exist. Except in heaven. And that's where we're going. We are going to 